Uh, last time, I went through a lot of scriptures showing how God had put a, wo- a, a yoke of wood upon Israel, uh, which was a lighter sentence for their sins, and then later on, if they continued in sin and were obstinate, rebellious, and so on, he would lay a yoke of iron on them, which meant that then they would be deported, enslaved, many would die by the sword, famine, and pestilence, and so on, and ended up by showing how America, in my view, has been under a yoke of wood, under a wrong government with people since the inception of the American government, and we have had to live under that wooden yoke while still living in the land that God promised Jacob. However, because of continued disobedience, uh, God is about to drop a yoke of iron upon us, and we are again going into captivity as a nation, as a people, and it isn't very far off. Now, I want to go back to Hebrews 12 again. We seem to be having difficulty getting on through this, but there are some important things I think we certainly need to consider uh, very deeply because this is a very important book to the church. I'd say it, is, it has one of the most powerful messages that is needed by the end-time church, all about trusting in God and believing who Christ is as the captain of our salvation, and looking to him, the author and finisher of our salvation, and certainly to walk in faith, because it is going to be a very rare commodity in the end. So there is much here that is pertinent to us today in the church. We talked about chastening last time, and about the wooden and the iron yokes, and how I believe that the church itself right now has encountered the iron yoke. The church has been scattered around the face of the earth. And through spiritual famine, pestilence, and disease, the earth is be I mean the earth, the, the church is being destroyed before our very eyes. Uh, the wooden yoke will be removed and the iron yoke put on the nation and it will be scattered and destroyed physically through famine, pestilence, and physical disease and illness and so on. So what we have already experienced on that spiritual level are people's Those around us and us, if we are not obedient, are going to have the iron yoke clamped on. So we are admonished in Hebrews 12 that when God does chasten us, that we repent, that we change, that we straighten our feet and walk in straight paths. That is the object of what he is doing, that we might be partakers of his holiness, as it says at the end of verse 10. So he says in verse 12 then, Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. We may feel hopeless and helpless. Our knees may be weak spiritually. And sometimes we get the feeling that I can't do this. This is too much for me. I I feel too weak. I'm not strong enough. And indeed, we aren't. That's the problem. So how are we going to resolve the difficulty? How are we going to lift up the hands? and strengthen the feeble needs. How to go about it? He says in verse 13, Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the path or the way, but let it rather be healed and healed straight so that it walks straight. As you walk straight, you begin to feel stronger, but you can't walk straight without God's help, we'll find. All right, then in verse 14, It's a very important piece of information for us. Follow peace with all men 
and holiness without which no man shall see the eternal. Now, we all have experienced and do experience feeling spiritually inept, inadequate, and unable to do what we need to do. We have temptations, we have directions that go the wrong way, or, or we have trials, troubles, tests of all kinds, which are very difficult for us. And sometimes it's hard to move forward. I want to go back to the book of Genesis. We need to have a, I think, quick overview, again, of the subject of peace and holiness and where God is in the picture and what he expects of us. Now remember I, I talked last time about how Israel sometimes found themselves fighting God because when they had the yoke of wood or the yoke of iron put upon their necks, then they would resist it. They would fight it. Now God had sent whomever was sent to punish them to give them trials, troubles, and difficulties. And it does say, doesn't it, that through much trial, tribulation, difficulty, enter the kingdom of God, and that straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, but the path to destruction is wide and easy, downhill all the way. That way is easy to go. So that New Testament instruction goes all the way back in God's mind to where he put trials, troubles, and tribulations upon Israel when they would disobey. So nothing has changed. When things become difficult, we simply cannot fight God. And Israel didn't realize they were fighting God. How many times when we have troubles and difficulties... Do we try to solve them some other way than through God? And do what we need to do to change us instead of trying to change everybody else or make everybody else think like we think or however we might approach it? How often do we get our egos and our vanities upset when we are corrected rather than changing what we need to change? It is so easy to kill the deliverer of bad news, which is what they literally used to do. If you bring me bad news, <laughs> you die. Seems harsh, but that's the way Gentile kings did it. We don't like to be told that we need to change anything. We don't like to be told that it might be our fault instead of someone else's, do we? Very difficult for us. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 27. God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and he told them to be blessed and replenish the earth and have dominion over it, and so on. So they were given the whole earth, basically, uh, starting out from the Garden of Eden. It would have been a beautiful world, but let's skip from there what God made and called it good, and see what happened in chapter 3, because I want to go all the way back to where man was, the state he was in, and what happened at that point. 
Chapter 3, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the eternal God had made. And serpent here is used, of course, as a type of Satan, the dragon. And he said to the woman, Yes, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. We, we can do this. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she remembered God's instruction about it, and she was probably somewhat fearful to partake of it. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Just the opposite of what God had said. Now there's a difficulty for you. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So he said something diametrically opposed to what God had said, and immediately then he made a justification for it by showing her that if you do what I'm telling you here, you're going to have a leap forward in understanding, and your life is going to be bettered by this. Sin can be very appealing. Doing wrong, saying wrong, can be very appealing. And we think that it could be very satisfying. And yet, we don't understand the implications. So he wasn't telling her that. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, I guess he pointed it out, maybe she hadn't even seen the tree. God had just told her. The Garden of Eden, I think, was bigger than what I originally imagined. And maybe she hadn't even made a trip to the middle of the garden to see it. So Satan pointed it out, may have led her there, she saw it. So not only did he appeal to her mind, her intellect, by saying, you can understand things you don't know. Oh, well, I want, I'm curious, I want to know. She was new on earth. And she wanted to know, very curious. Then he appealed to her five senses by pointing out the fruit, and she said, hey, that looks pretty good, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to desire to make one wise. So she said, it'll help my mind and my intellect, and it'll taste good both. Why not? So she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. Maybe he was kind of standing a little behind and God was working on her to begin with. The eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed big leaves together and made aprons or clothing. Up to that point, they felt no shame, no lack of modesty or no modesty. One way or another, they felt perfectly natural being walking around nude. Didn't bother them at all. You know, little children are like that. We've all probably seen a two- or three-year-old child run out in the middle of the living room where there's company, stark naked. They think nothing of it. Of course, parents shoot them back in, but they don't think anything of it. You see a little girl who's talking sometimes about that tall, and she'll lift her dress up under her chin, you know, and this is, she doesn't think anything of it. Very innocent. Hasn't yet learned about those things. God wants us to become as little children, innocent in evil, where we put evil away from us. But when they partook of that, did that make their lives suddenly better? No, suddenly they were embarrassed, they were ashamed to see God or have God see them. 
And they were ashamed in front of each other. It shouldn't be that way with husband and wife. But the innocence was stripped away just like that in a moment. And suddenly they knew shame. Suddenly they knew embarrassment. They had never suffered any discomfort to that point in their lives. They were just plain happy to be until that moment. They heard God and they hid. Why do you hide? You're afraid. They'd never known fear to that point of any kind. There was nothing to fear. Well, suddenly there was guilty conscience and fear. God says to Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, God can see whether he had clothes on or not. God can see through those. So it didn't change anything as far as what God could see or had seen. What it changed was their attitude. And now, suddenly, there were problems. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of that tree? Notice verse 12. And the man said, the woman you gave me, it's all her fault. There went the marriage down the tubes. Because women don't like to be told it's all their fault. Any of you guys ever notice that? The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I ate it. So he blamed the woman and she blamed the snake or blamed Satan. The devil made me do it. People still do that today. The devil made I didn't. I'm not responsible. The devil did it to me. Second oldest excuse on earth, and it's still a very, very well-used one. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go, and thus shall you eat all the days of your life. Perhaps literally snakes had legs at that time, but God used them as a type of Satan, took their legs off and let them slither from then on. I don't know exactly, but that may have been the way it was done, so that when you see a snake, you see a type of Satan that can't walk, has to slither. But notice the penalty. What would happen? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. For the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow you shall bring forth children with great pain and difficulty. And your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Satan, I mean, Adam had not ruled over her to that point. They were co-heirs together of the grace of life. Now, he was to be the dominant one in the head of the house, but he was not to treat his wife like chattel or a lesser being or whatever. And from that moment forward, women became downtrodden, misused, abused, and looked upon as lesser creatures and basically there to fulfill man's needs, whatever they might be, without love, consideration, caring given to them. They became virtual slaves. And until the situation in America where that was pretty much removed, all through history, women were treated like cattle to be used, abused, 
bought, sold, whatever the man wanted to do. Most cultures today are still that way. And even though emancipation has occurred in America, that in itself has not brought peace either. Now you have a fight because neither feels that they should obey the other. And my opinion is just as good as yours is. (coughs) And the divorce rates have actually gone up since emancipation. Troubles in marriages have gotten greater because there is more evil. And then he told Adam he would have a tough time. He would have to sweat and work hard to even make a living. Thorns and thistles will bring, come out. The sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to the ground. So from now on till the day you die, it's going to be difficult to make a living and get by. There's not really been peace on earth since then. Now, who was right, God or Satan? God said, you'll surely start heading toward death and die if you eat of that tree. And Satan said, ah, don't listen to him. Everything will be fine. You'll be smarter, and everything will work better. Okay, who was right? Now, he told us to follow peace with all men. But Satan divided the first marriage. There had to be guilt, there had to be shame, there had to be hatred from that time forward because each probably wound up blaming the other for being kicked out of the garden and going through the curses that they went through as a result of just eating of that one tree. Genesis 3, verse 24 So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep them away from the tree of life. Now we're going to see today that God uses the sword to protect his people, but if he, man disobeys, or Israel disobeys, then he will use the sword against his people. So we can have it one way or the other. God fighting for us or God fighting against us? We saw last time that God, most of Israel's history has been fighting against Israel because Israel, for the most part, has not obeyed. And every time he gives them a fresh start, they seem to go the wrong direction. So God uses his sword against disobedience. Remember Esau, Genesis 27, 40? What did Esau do? He despised, did not value highly what God had given him. As a result, God took it away, and no more or no time from that point forward has God ever fought for Esau or his descendants. Never fought for them. And one of the blessings, so-called, I guess, that Isaac pronounced upon Esau is that you will live by your sword henceforth and forevermore. In other words, I won't fight your battles for you. You will have to fight for your very life. Kind of a backhanded blessing. Of course, a lot of people, if they were in an attitude, would say, all right, I can use my sword and I can go out and fight and I can kill anybody I want to. There's a carnal reaction. But that's not what was really being said. What was really being said is, you're on your own. If you're going to live, you're going to have to use the sword to stay alive. Now, 
What did God want? Let's go back to a very, very important moment in history, chapter 14 of Genesis. No, Exodus, I mean. Exodus 14. Here, they were leaving Egypt. God, through a, an incredible series of miracles, had brought them to the edge of the Red Sea. Verse 13. What did Moses tell them? Moses said to the people, Fear you not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Eternal, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. They were in a very tight situation. They were human beings, just like you and me. They had all the feelings, the emotions that you and I had. They had mountains on two sides that they could not climb quickly. They had a sea of water in front of them which, in which they would drown if they tried to swim across. They had an incredible army right behind them in chariots preparing to run them down, drill them through with swords and cut their heads off, or with spears and cut their heads off with swords. They were all facing death. Right then. Not something way off, but right then. And they were scared half to death. What do you do? Moses said, stand still. Don't do anything. And see the salvation of the eternal. Now this was a very pivotal moment in the history of our peoples. And God's desire, God's will, God's purpose, was that they not try to defend themselves, they not try to do anything, but trust Him to take care of them. And He said, The Eternal shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Not to lift a sword, not to lift a knife, not to lift a spoon or anything, to save themselves, whatever they might have had on hand. Trust God. Who is God? They'd just been asking a few days earlier which God this was. Could he do such a thing? The Eternal said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Speak to the children of Israel that they go forward. Lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Moses was probably scared too. And God says, divide the sea. Okay. How? He had to walk by faith. He's listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the faithful. So he lifted his rod and the sea began to part. A great cloud stopped the Egyptians. They couldn't see to come through. While the sea parted and the Wind came and dried the land. Incredible. That's a story we could spend some time on, but I want to move on and cover a lot of ground today. Now, his attitude was, I will protect you, I will fight your battles. Let's go to Exodus 22 and verse 20. Not very far down the road. 
from God's deliverance there. Exodus 22, verse 20. He that sacrifices to any god, save to the eternal only, he shall be utterly destroyed. God has said, I will protect you, I will take care of you, stand still, trust me, everything will go fine in your life. But if you sacrifice to any other god now, he says, you'll be utterly destroyed. You shall neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Take care of strangers and people in need. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. We are to be very, very careful in our society for those who have needs. Take care of them. Otherwise, if they cry to God, there's going to be problems. There's a lot of injustice in the land today. God is not happy with it. God said, I will kill you. Exodus 15, verse 7. Well, verse 6, Your right hand, O Eternal, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Eternal, has dashed in pieces the enemy. It gave God credit for destroying. This is talking about the Red Sea. Verse 7, In the greatness of your excellency, you have overthrown them that rose up against you. You sent forth your wrath, which consumed them as stubble. We have historical records showing that God was able to to preserve Israel from mighty armies, from Goliath, from whomever you wish to talk about in the Old Testament and in the New. Peter out of prison, Paul saved from stoning, on and on it goes. God is able. You know what the problem is? We just don't believe him. That's the problem. So when we have troubles, and we're going to face some, we face some now and we're going to face a lot more later, we simply have trouble believing in God. That's what it all boils down to. Verse 3, uh, no, verse... Uh, you've dashed the enemy, verse 6, verse 7, in your wrath you consume them as stubble, and with the blast of your nostrils the waters were gathered together, the flood stood upright as a heap. For God to part the Red Sea was no more than you and I blowing our nose is the analogy here. Pretty easy to blow your nose. A God can part an ocean as easily as we can do that. The flood stood upright as a heap. The depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You did blow with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like to you, O Eternal, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people which you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. God has promised us in the end time. But if we will obey him and serve him, he will see us through all the trouble that is to come against us. 
He will protect us. We have to do what he told them, follow his instructions. Chapter 18, verse 4. The name of the other was Eliezer, for the God of my father said he was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. They remembered this for a long, long time, even though they wouldn't trust God and continue to walk in his ways. Leviticus 26. <clears throat> and here let's begin in verse 1. Read a few verses. <clears throat> you shall make you no idols, nor graven images, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall you set up any image of stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Eternal, your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Eternal. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season. The land shall yield her increase. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. America right now is in probably the worst drought it has ever faced. Some places have the worst drought that has ever been since the recording of weather. It's getting worse, while others get 18 inches of rain in one night, one day. 18 plus inches down around San Antonio the other night. I guess Charles was down there by then. I haven't called to see if he floated to sea. I thought of it, but it was at the wrong moment. But we're headed the opposite direction of what this is saying. Verse 5, your threshing shall reach to the vintage, and the vintage shall reach to the sowing time, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely, and I will give peace in the land. He says, follow peace with all men. There in Hebrews 12 we read. That theme will be coming back in back all the way through here. You shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will rid evil beasts out of the land. Neither shall a sword go through your land. I'll protect you from all enemies. And you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred shall put ten thousand to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect to you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and establish my covenant with you, and you shall eat old store and bring forth the old because of the new. God promises that he will bless. Then in 15 he says, if you shall despise my statutes, then he gives a long list of curses. Peace will go away, your enemy will chase you, a few of them will chase 10,000 of you. It will be just the opposite if we are not willing to trust God. Uh, verse 25 says that in a summary, I will bring a sword upon you that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant. What's the quarrel of his covenant? The only quarrel is that he says, I'll do this if you'll do this, and we didn't do it, and therefore it created animosity, removed peace, brought about war, and God says, okay, I told you I'd protect you. You won't obey me. In come the enemies. It's the way God works. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 28. And here I want to pick it up in verse 1. Long chapter. It shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently to the voice of the Eternal your God, to observe and do all His commandments, which I command you this day, that the Eternal your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come. And then he mentions all kinds of blessings. 
Verse 6, blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Eternal shall cause your enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. They'll attack you from this direction and they'll flee in every direction seven different ways. Wouldn't that be neat? If you were obeying God and you knew that if enemies came against you, God would send them away like scalded cows. Cow, that's the wrong analogy. Scalded cats. It's the one we use. Don't put a cat in scalding water to check it. But I had cousins that tried it. And a scalded cat really, really runs. And God said, that's the way your enemies will be before you. <clears throat> I would like that. Deuteronomy 33. Verse 26. There is none like the God, to the God of Jeshurun, that's of Israel, who rides upon the heaven in your help. He's in the heavens to help you. And in his excellency on the sky. He is above all, he sees all, and he can do all. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He's willing to have put his arms underneath you to lift you from trouble. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before you, and shall say, destroy them. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone, not being pestered by others around her. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heaven shall drop down dew. Our land today has been that way, hasn't it? One of the most blessed places on the face of the earth. I would have to say the most blessed place on the face of the earth. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like to you, O people, saved by the Eternal, the shield of your health, and who is the sword of your excellency? And your enemies shall be found liars to you, and you shall tread upon their high places. What a glorious promise. What incredible metaphor. That's true. We are facing a situation where we are going to have enemies come against our land, and there is opportunity to have God on our side if we will but repent. If we don't, then he says he will fight against us. And remember, he's up there and has all power in the universe. And if God is fighting you, you don't have a chance. There was another pivotal moment in Israel's history I'm not going to go there and read it. We know the story. I think I referred to it the other day. Where they were to come into the land of promise, crossing the Jordan River. The first obstacle they met was Jericho. God had said, I will push the inhabitants of the land out from before you. I'll fight your battles for you. I won't remove all those peoples from the land immediately, lest the wild beasts come in and eat you up. We'll keep them there to keep the wild beasts down, but slowly I'll move them out from in front of you. So they march in, God says, all right, circle Jericho, don't say a word. Seventh day, shout and blow the trumpet, the walls will all fall down. They did what he said, and it happened. Now God was showing them, I'm with you, I want to do 
good for you in whatever way. Those walls just simply fell down and all they had to do was march in and take over. As long as they obeyed, everything went fine. But then Achan, and they were told at this point, now other times they were told you can have all the treasures and the spoils. This time, the first time, they were to trust God completely, not take any spoil. But Achan decided he needed some. He went and hid it. And as a result, 36 men died and more would have had he not been killed and that sin taken away. Well, God gives us promises, and there's so much in here to show that he fulfills his part. 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. Let's see, here I want uh, about verse 46. This is, well, let's pick it up in 45, where David is facing Goliath. Then said David to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Here's little bitty guy David, and huge Goliath, who had on heavy armor, and all the tools of war, and the training, and the background, and the attitude. David said, I'm, I have no armor, I have no weapons, save this little slingshot, rocks I picked up out of the creek. I mean, this is a mismatch, okay? There's no way. There's no way on earth that that little fellow could whip that giant. But David was depending upon God. And that made all the difference. And he was bold. The, the righteous are bold as lions. This day will the eternal deliver you into my hand, and I will smite you and take your head off you, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day to the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Look at David's attitude. He wasn't going to take any glory, any credit, but he knew when he stood there in faith that God would deliver him with his little slingshot from this giant, this man of war, and that all the world would fear Israel because of God. Now, we are told in many prophecies that here at the end time, God is going to work through a few faithful people whom he will draw together, and that through them, and what he does through them, all the world will know God. We've seen it over and over and over again in Ezekiel. We've seen it in Isaiah. We've seen it in Jeremiah. We've seen it in all the prophecies. Haggai 2, he says, in this place, this remnant of faithful people, I will bring peace. How can there be peace if there's warring and fighting and enemies who are encroaching upon you? There can't be. Nor can there be peace if you're fighting amongst yourselves over whatever. God says he will bring peace by his power, by his spirit. He brought peace peace to Israel right here because it was not a vain boast by David. 
he did cut Goliath's head off. And everybody feared Israel after that. 2 Samuel 12. I'll give you one more example back here. 2 Samuel 12. Let's see, let's go to verse 9. I don't want to spend time for the whole story, but here's where Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel. No, wait a minute, that's not the one. 2 Samuel 9, 12, verse 9. I wanted to go here too. Uh, let's go ahead since we're here. <clears throat> Wherefore have you despised the commandment of the Eternal to do evil in his sight? God is correcting David here. Uh, you have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He told him before that. He said, why'd you kill that man and take his? I'd have given you all the wives you wanted, David, if he just asked me. But you took somebody else's. As a result... David, like Esau, would have the sword in his family, in his house, forevermore. He was of the house of Judah. Not only did David have wars with his own children, there were wars against Israel, and today, to this date, there are people warring against the children of David, the tribe of Judah. It has never gone out of his house. because of disobedience to God. God fought for David many, many times, didn't he? Go through the Psalms and see where God fought battles for David. But David, God told him, because of this sin, you're going to have to fight your own battles. You're going to have the sword in your family because you murdered a man and took his wife. Let's go down to 1 Chronicles 21. God can be so very, very loving, and yet he can be very, very harsh, especially with those who know and don't obey him anyway. To whom much is given, much is required. 1 Chronicles 21, here I want verse 11. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 9. The Eternal spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Eternal, I offer you three things. Choose you one of them, that I may do it to you. Now, this is the case where David, going back to verse 1, uh, pro uh, Satan provoked David to number Israel. Now, God had told Israel many times, I will be your protector, I will take care of you. And he'd instructed them carefully not to number the fighting men in Israel. But Satan provoked David, tempted him, into seeing how many men of war he had. Well, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is you're beginning to count the men to see how strong you are, what you can do against enemies, as opposed to looking to God and saying, what can God do? against my enemies. How can God save me? And God did not like that attitude. Now, David might not have even been planning to go to war, but he showed an attitude there of willingness to look to his own arm, even though he had asked God at times 
to protect him and to protect Israel. God gave him three opportunities. Says, so here's you got punishment coming. I'll give you your choice of three. Either three years of famine, verse 12, or three months to be destroyed before your foes, while that at the sword of your enemies overtake you. Or else, three days, the sword of the eternal, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the eternal destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Now therefore advise yourself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. Was he to let man overrun Israel for three months and famine and pestilence or just put himself in the hands of God? David said to Gad, I am in a great difficulty here trying to figure which way to go. Let me fall now into the hand of the eternal, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So as a result, only 70,000 men died of pestilence in that three days of God's wrath. But David could see that the difference between man and God is still vast, and a lot more people would have died had God just turned the enemy loose on them instead of God himself sending an angel to do it. Second Chronicles 20, verses 1 through 10 I'm not going to turn uh, verses 1 through 26, really, that God saved Israel when Jehoshaphat obeyed. It's a good story, but for sake of time, I've got other areas I want to get to the New Testament here. <clears throat> Psalm 44, 6 through 8, uh, 45, 3. There are places where God listened to David, heard him, said he would send his power. Let's go to Ezekiel 35. It's an end-time book. Just touch a few highlights here. There are others. I'm overlooking hundreds and hundreds of scriptures, picking out a few as we make a survey quickly through the Bible about things that God has done, promised and said, and what Israel has done. Ezekiel 35, verse 6. Therefore, as I live, says the eternal God, I will prepare you to blood, and blood shall pursue you, since you have not hated blood, even blood shall pursue you. Speaking two ways. Speaking certainly to physical Israel who has gone to war and has sought blood. And right now, we are attacking any and everyone we deem to be an enemy and shedding blood all over the world. I mean, most of you probably didn't even notice in the news two or three weeks ago that we sent in an airplane or more and bombed the little village in the mountains of Somalia because we thought there were terrorists being trained there. We'll bomb any country, anywhere, anytime we feel like it, especially if we think there are not repercussions. What could Somalia do? <laughs> you know, nothing. Iraq soon to go into Iran, apparently, and on and on it goes. We don't care about shedding blood of others, nor do our leaders care whether the blood of our own soldiers is shed, as long as they get what they want. In the church, we shed blood spiritually. 
When we talk against one another, when we put each other down, when we blame one another, when we accuse, when we blame others for our problems instead of ourselves, there are so many ways we shed spiritual blood in the church. And God says, spiritually, he will shed our blood the same way we shed the blood of others. Matthew 5, he says, I'll judge you just like you judge others. Well, these stories from the Old Testament are very pertinent today. Some might have been physical punishment. Now we're talking spiritual punishment. And if we don't repent spiritually, then the physical punishment will come. Uh, Ezekiel 11.8 says, You feared the sword, I will bring the sword upon you. Now, <clears throat> we've examined some Old Testament scriptures to show that God intended man to live in peace. The Garden of Eden was a very peaceful place until man and woman disobeyed God. And it's been a mess, essentially, ever since. And God has gone up and down with Israel, trying to get somebody, somewhere, to obey God. Bringing blessing when they would for a short while, and then bringing cursing when they didn't for a longer while. And most of the time, people have chosen not to obey God. Now, is anything different in the New Testament? Have things changed? Is God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Or is he now a much kinder, gentler God than he was then? How much kinder and gentler can you get than saying, if you'll obey me, your harvest will go together with your plantings and your enemies will leave you alone and you'll have peace and safety, all you can eat, all you can drink. You'll have a wonderful life. Your children won't die on you. You won't have miscarriages. On and on it goes. How kind and loving can you be? Matthew 10, verse 36. Well, it's, no, I want uh, verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. You mean Christ didn't come to bring peace? I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foe shall be they of his own household. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that takes not up his stake of crucifixion and follows after me is not worthy of me. He came deliberately to call some to his truth. And that would make automatically enemies in the same household. Because I'm going to call some out of a family and I'm not going to call others. And you're going to have war. You're going to have trouble. We all have experienced that, haven't we? To one degree or another. And we still have wars and fighting in families and among families in the church. Sometimes it's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. May not be killing physically, but we certainly will blame others and create wars and fighting among ourselves. Matthew 26, verse 51. 
Well, God said, I'm going to bring difficulty upon you. Then he spends a lot of time in the New Testament telling us how to deal with those difficulties. Here's the case where Peter decided he'd probably chop off the high priest's servant's ear. Verse 52, Then Emmanuel said to him, Put up again your sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Think you that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Seventy thousand angels he'll set. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it has to be the way that it is? God was sending a sword upon Christ himself. A sword of execution. Well, they did ram a spear up into his side, which wound up eventually killing him with the blood draining out. He sent a sword upon him because of our disobedience so that his blood pouring out could cover our sins. But he told Peter, put his sword away. You're not to fight. Anybody that lives by the sword is going to die by the sword. If we fight and squabble among ourselves and accuse one another of whatever it might be with ourselves, our children, our grandchildren, our uh, friends and acquaintances, whatever the situation may be. God says if you fight with the sword of the mouth, you're going to die by the sword of the mouth. That's the way it's going to be. Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Emmanuel, our Lord. He's going to love us no matter what, but that doesn't mean he's not going to put us through some of these things that he just enumerates here. They are to try us. They are to test us. They are to see if we will war and fight against God, distrust him, or if we will trust in him, and follow his ways, and treat each other with love and respect, and keep our big fat mouths and tongues off of one another. But we always justify ourselves some way, don't we, in putting each other down, and finding something we don't like, and opening our big blabbing mouths about each other, and therefore putting our brethren to the sword of the tongue. We can't cut ourselves off from the fact that God does love us. But we can cut each other up, can't we? And we think nothing of it, it seems. It's so easy to do. We don't care. We try to find those who will sympathize with us and build alliances for us against whomever it is that we have an issue or a problem. 
sad, but true. Romans 15, verse 19. <clears throat> what is that God able to do? In the book of Acts, after Pentecost and Acts 2, what did the disciples do? Verse 19, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. God was able to get his message out through the apostles by his very power. We do feel spiritually weak, don't we? We feel feeble. We feel like we can't live up to it. And you know what? We can't. As human beings, we can't. So we have to do what? Now the disciples were still quarreling, they were still lying, they were still denying Christ, they were still running until the Spirit came in Acts 2. And then by the Spirit and the power of God, they were able to heal the sick, raise the dead, deliver out of prison, survive stoning, avoid stoning. Incredible miracles came by the power of God. Now, we can't do much on our own. But the power of God is vast, and it is unlimited. He can do anything. He can send 12 legions of angels. There can be the chariots of fire that no one can see. But it was either Elijah or Elisha looked up and saw. God was there, even though he felt very weak, very inept, very inadequate, as if he would die and couldn't make it. And then God let him see, hey, don't worry, I'll take care of you. God is going to show us those things someday if we're faithful now in tribulation, trial, trouble, discouragement, and we keep walking forward in faith, at some point, he's going to show us the chariots of fire. At some point, he's going to show his mighty and strong arm and bear his arm before the Lord. And if we will obey him all the way through, just as he told David, I will make the whole world know that Israel has a God by bearing his right arm. It's coming. We need to feel inadequate. We need to feel humbled. A truly humble person does not belittle, put down, accuse others of things because he realizes he himself has weaknesses. It is our ego, it is our vanity, it is our self-centeredness, our selfishness that causes us to open our mouths and cut each other apart with our tongues. It is our problem. Now that person may have a problem, but if we cut them apart on it and share their problem with others, thereby stabbing them in the back, then we have a worse problem than whatever problem that person has. Can we grasp that reality?
What is probably the worst thing that Satan does? He goes before the throne of God, accusing the brethren, doesn't he? Now, he has some pretty serious problems. He's a liar, he's a thief, he's a murderer, he's everything black and dark on the face of the earth. But what is the thing that is most hurtful to you and me that Satan does? The most hurtful thing that Satan, the devil, the dragon can do is go before God and make accusation against his people. And yet we accuse each other blithely, easily. We get in attitudes about each other. Or we go to others about things we either imagine or think or sometimes even may know that are problems. He who lives by the sword, brethren, is going to die by the sword. He who cuts others with physical sword or tongue is going to be cut. Christ is going to come with the sword of his mouth and put down all those who will not obey him. John 18, 36. We could use this sermon also to show how God expects us to interact both as a nation and as a church with the world. John 18, verse 36. Emmanuel answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. He says, I'm not going to fight. My servants won't fight. I'm going to allow myself to be killed. Did Daniel fight, scream and claw not to be thrown into the lion's den? No. He went quietly, trusting God. Did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego scream and holler and fight and resist when they were led to be thrown into the fiery furnace? No, they just went. Did Paul fight? Now, he appealed to Rome. He went and presented his case to Rome. But when Rome sent out a verdict, said, Paul, you've got to die, Paul accepted that God must have wanted him to die. That's something that Israel throughout its history never seemed to get through their heads. That if there was a reason, they were in God's hands. God loved them. God wanted them to obey. But sometimes he was their enemy and wanted them to die. They would not accept that, so they resisted Nebuchadnezzar. They resisted whoever came against them not realizing it was God sending those people to chasten them and to humble them so that they might be humble and meek and trusting in God. So instead of repenting, they resisted and fought and died. We're not to fight. We can present our case. But then, ultimately, we have to accept unless and until God delivers. I am sure Peter didn't want to go to prison 
But he didn't fight it. He went. And when God was ready to deliver, he opened the gates, and Peter walked out. And those people who were there praying for Peter, when he walked up and knocked on the door, didn't believe it. Now, if you don't expect him to be delivered from prison, why are you wasting your time and energy and breath praying about it? Oh, well, I'll go pray about it. I'll pray for you. So they went in and they had a little prayer meeting and they prayed for Peter. But they just couldn't believe that God would actually answer a prayer. The girl ran back in and says, Peter's at the door. Oh, no, he's out. He's in prison. He can't be at the door. Was that a prayer in faith? Or was God humbling and shaming them because of their weak, insipid, unbelieving prayers? Now God has said that he doesn't believe in weak and insipid. He says, come boldly to the throne of grace. You can come more boldly if you're more obedient. Why do we snivel? Why do we whine and complain to God? It's because we aren't obedient enough to have confidence in Him. That's why. <clears throat> Let's go to uh, Matthew 5. We'll see that Christ's attitude did not change from Genesis 3 until today. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We're not supposed to be making war in the world or among ourselves. We're supposed to be making peace. If there's a rift, if there's a difficulty among any of us, what are we supposed to do? Find people who will sympathize with us? Tell them about the other person's problems? Or are we supposed to be finding a way to make Peace. Verse 21. You have heard it that was said by them of old time, you shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Then he goes on down to explain that we're not supposed to hate or be bitter against our brother. The spirit of murder is the spirit of hate. We simply can't have that. We can't despise other people or call them a fool. God says, don't do that. You have to make peace. It doesn't come easily. Let me tie, keep your finger there, I'll be right back. Go back to Romans 12 just for a moment. Romans 12, verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Eternal. See, an attitude of vengeance, maybe you don't take vengeance by killing someone, but if someone tells you that someone did something or said something about you, what is your reaction? That dirty skunk! It is the spirit of vengeance. It is ego, self-centeredness, and selfishness to take umbrage when we hear something, somebody has said something bad about us. Instead, 
we need to be humble and meek and say, well, they were probably right. Might have their facts wrong, but they sure got the right person. I certainly do have lots of problems and weaknesses. No, we will avenge ourselves. Our vanity rises to the surface, and we want to justify. We want to look good in our own eyes and the eyes of others. Vengeance belongs to God. I will repay, says the Eternal. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, tell everybody what a dirty, rotten scoundrel he is. Tell the sins of others to your friends, neighbors, and relatives. Is that what it says? If your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. If somebody says something bad about you, and you say something bad back, either to the person or the one who brought it to you, you have not overcome evil. Evil has overcome you. Hasn't it? Now what does God say to do? If somebody says something bad about you, somebody has an issue against you, somebody stabbed you in the back, somebody's complained about you, your kids, or your grandkids, what are you supposed to do? Invite them over and feed them a nice meal, give them something to drink, and love them. Overcome evil with good. So from now on, when anybody invites you here to come eat with them, you will know. Never mind. I want to go back to Matthew 5. Uh, here, let's go down to verse 38. Well, I'm in 6. Where's 38? You've heard it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Oh, he called me that, did he? Well, he's the same thing. Whatever. But I say to you that you do not resist evil. Whosoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's Bible. God expects us to do that, not just quote it in fun. If somebody smites you, you literally are supposed to give them the opportunity to continue smiting you. You are not to fight it. You are to swallow your pride, your envy, your vanity, your jealousness, yourself. Crowd it back down. When those words start coming up your throat and into your tongue and you're about to say them about somebody, God says, swallow it. Turn the other cheek. That's what he expects of us. We're not to go to war among ourselves. Now, this is talking about human relations, isn't it? It's not talking about swords and spears physically. I mean, how many armies go out each other and pop each other on the cheek? It's not the way they fight. This is talking about human relationships, is what it's talking about. 
somebody gives you a problem, just quietly say, all right, you got me there, hit me here. Is that tough? How hard is Christianity? How hard is it? That is against everything in us. It is absolutely contrary to our nature. I wonder how many people, since this was written 2,000 years ago, have actually lived by this. That it is a part of their daily repertoire of things to do. How many? Can you remember when you have? Or does that tongue get in the way immediately? That self-justification. It's not the way God wants us to be in our reactions. If any man will sue you at the law and take away your coat, give him your cloak also. Whoever will compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asks you, for him that would borrow of you, turn not you away. You've heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now that prayer would go like this. God, get him. Wouldn't it? Well, it has, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. How many of us have really lived by that? God is going to bring peace on this earth. And these attitudes that Christ is talking about that we need to cultivate and develop are what are necessary to bring peace. Because any time our reactions are human, selfish, and carnal, it destroys peace. It shatters it. It just escalates. He said that, she said that, he said that, she said that, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, doesn't it? Everybody has, it seems, to have to have the last word. Have you ever heard that among children or mates or friends? You said that. Nobody will just shut up. They'll tell each other to shut up. And they hope that's the last word. But it's not. No, you shut up. Real peaceful, isn't it? I don't even like to say it. I have, but I mean, just to tell it, it creates war. It is vanity that requires us to have the last word. When will we, see that other person's trying to control you with their tongue. When will we just learn to control ourselves and shut up? God does not want us fighting or escalating fights. He wants us to make peace by treating anyone who mistreats us or our families with love and concern and respect and to feed them and to help them and to love them. That's what he expects of us. Let's go to Ephesians 6, verse 17. Ephesians 6. Now I want to start in verse 10. How much time do I have? Very little. Wow. Let's move on. Ephesians 6, verse 10. 
Finally, my brethren, as a last word, be strong in the eternal. If your feet and knees feel feeble and your arms don't have any strength, you feel spiritually inept, go to God. Be strong in the eternal. Um, and in the power of His might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Adam and Eve were not able to stand against Him. They didn't have the power of God. Mankind ever since has buckled under to Satan. If you're not going to buckle under to Satan, you have to do something. You have to put on the whole armor of God because you can't fight him on your own. Can't do it. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It isn't just our human nature, but Satan lays all kinds of things in our path to distract us, to tempt us, to lead us in wrong paths. Wherefore, take to you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. If we do all of what those few verses we just read in Matthew 5, we'll be able to stand. Because it takes the armor of God, the power of God, to control our tongues, to control our reactions, to control our accusations and everything that human beings do to one another. How many of us have had roast preacher in the past? Are we following the scripture that says that you are not even to bring an accusation against an elder without at least two witnesses? We should not even, if somebody accuses Gordon of something, they come to me and accuse Gordon of something, or Nelson, for instance. If they don't have two witnesses, two eyewitnesses, I am not supposed to even listen to it. They could come to me and say, I saw Gordon do that with my own two eyes. You must do something about it. My godly reaction should be, where is the other witness? Where are two of you who saw Gordon do that dastardly thing? Well, I was the only one there. All right, go away. You wouldn't like that, would you? You would want vengeance on that guy. Because you saw it with your own two eyes. Justice isn't done unless you do something. No, God tells me. Don't even hear it unless at least two people saw it. Now that would be a tough one at that point for me to obey too. Wouldn't it? Because that witness would be very irate. They would be very believable. They might even be able to show they might even have a picture. But they and the camera and Gordon were the only ones there. I think, based on that scripture, I should not even look at the picture.
because it's so easy for us to accuse an elder. And then it's just your word against my word, your word against his word. He said, she said, he said, he said, she said. It can go nowhere. So stand in the armor of God. Verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You're walking in the way of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. We have to live and walk by faith. That's the message of Hebrews. Let God take care of things, whatever they may be, good, bad, or indifferent. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only sword God gives us is this Word. Now, what does it do? Cuts through to the marrow, the very bone, through the gristle and everything, Hebrews 4.12. This is what we fight with. We're told to fight the fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. All right, let's wrap this up. Hebrews 11, verse 34. These people quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. There are some people who did obey God, and God did all these things for them. They walked in faith, and at some point, God delivered. Did he allow them to go through great tests, trials, tribulations, and difficulties? Did he allow them to be hurt? Physically, mentally, emotionally, yes, he did. But if they continued believing him, whatever trouble they had to wade through, they did it. In some cases, they even died. But they were faithful to the end. And you know what? They're going to be in that first resurrection. They're going to shine like stars. And they're going to rule on the earth and help bring peace to the earth because they did not fight whatever fate God put upon them. Whatever enemies God sent, they accepted and turned the other cheek. Sometimes they were delivered, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sometimes a person who, through his writing, seems to be most, one of the most kindly, gentle people that's walked the earth, Isaiah, probably got sawed in half from stem to stern, not accepting deliverance, because he believed, not in this life, but in eternal life. He that seeks to save his life shall lose it, and he who seeks to lose it in Christ will save it, eternally and forevermore. He expects us to walk in faith until the moment we die whatever might bring that death upon us. Now what does he tell the very end time church? I'm going to read you a couple of scriptures. Let's go back to Zechariah 4, verse 6. Here we're going to read about one of the two witnesses, Zechariah 4, verse 6, Zerubbabel. 
These are the two men that God is going to use at the end to warn the world, to go against the world. They're not going to be able to fight. Now, God will miraculously cause fire to come out of their mouths to destroy their enemies if they try to kill them up to a certain point. But he tells Zerubbabel in verse 6, Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Eternal to Zerubbabel. Here's the advice God gives to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Eternal of hosts. All he will have is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to preach to people, to tell them how they're wrong and what they should be doing and aren't doing, otherwise they will suffer the consequences. That's the only thing God gives them, is his Word. They won't have the strength. They will have feeble knees and weak arms, unless they are armed by the power of God. But he, he warns him, this is going to be a view that has to be of God. Revelation 11. Here he addresses both. Revelation 11, verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two candlesticks, men of oil, anointed ones of Zechariah 4. God will give power. If any man will hurt them, verse 5, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours them, and in this manner they must be killed. He gives them the power over water to turn it to blood, to bring drought, plagues, whatever. But not by physical means, only by the power of God. And then, after three and a half years of preaching, they know in their heart of hearts and in their minds that they're going to have to go to war against people who hate them, and they will then be killed very mercilessly, very brutally, because it will be a fight to the finish, and they will die. So what has been shall be again. This is what is facing the church in times to come. Does God want us to take up the sword and fight? Or does he want us to look to him entirely, totally, completely, and walk by faith? Daniel did. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Isaiah did. John, Peter, Paul, James, Stephen did. And they're all going to be in the kingdom of God. We can be there also. Isaiah 2.4 says that when Christ returns, peace will come. Peace will come in the church ahead of that, Haggai says, when the remnant comes together. How do you have peace? By the fruit of the Spirit, through the power and the Spirit of God, Galatians 5. One of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. If we have the Spirit of God daily, we should become or come to be having more and more peace among ourselves not more accusation, not more war, not more gossip, but less. If we're going to rule in the world tomorrow when men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and have peace, we must learn to live in peace today and be very, very careful not to take 
the arms or the armaments of the flesh and cut other people up and kill them, spiritually or physically. But to live by the Word of God, to learn to turn the other cheek and not to resist evil, but to love those who bring evil upon us. We are to follow peace with all men and holiness, without which we will not see the eternal.